Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Your differences aren't flaws. Sometimes you're seeing the toxicity in the water. A fish doesn't know it's in water. Oftentimes we as women, people of color, what have you, we're swimming in it all day. Don't let that toxicity become your voice, your own inner critic. What you see now is not the end of the story, but the empowering part is that you get to shape that story and be motivated and empowered to be a part of that. If you're talking about equality, it's a starting point of everybody gets the same thing. So you could say everyone's getting a pair of shoes, but they're all a size seven, right? You're not gonna fit everyone the same because you're not looking at the context. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Today's guest is a leader, builder, and connector. She has notably and successfully navigated leadership roles within government, philanthropic, and corporate sectors, and in each sector she created and served in inaugural roles to meet growing organizational needs and visions for change. She is the principal and founder of Rare Coaching and Consulting, which is a consulting practice focused on coaching leaders and organizations to elevate their leadership skills and remove barriers to inclusion. My guest also co-leads the Daring Way and the Dare to Lead communities of Brené Brown Education and Research Group, serving as Senior Co-Director. She partners to oversee development and implementation of the overall strategy for the facilitator communities, as well as a specific diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging strategy and oversight of the global more than 1,500 member facilitator community. Prior to this, she served as Head of Diversity and Inclusion at the Fred Hutch Research Centre and for seven years was with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where she served as a Deputy Director. A member of several boards, she is deeply engaged in community building. When not engaged with all of her passionate drive to educate and coach, she enjoys time with her family, who, in her own words, keep her heart filled with belly laughs. She also enjoys spending her time serving the community. A certified coach and certified diversity professional, she is also licensed to practice law in Georgia and has been recognized two years consecutively, both in 2019 and 2020, by Culture Amp as a leading national voice on diversity and inclusion. She was also recognized by Forbes as one of the top seven anti-racism educators in 2020. Unsurprisingly, my wonderful guest is a very highly sought-after executive coach and consultant, which makes her presence and time to be with us on the Elevate podcast so much more special. I could not be more grateful to have our guest, as her voice and her messaging are extremely poignant and vital. She has the gift of conveying profound messages in a clear and simple manner. 
I believe her teachings will touch us all on different levels. Whether we are parents, young folks, educators, or anyone who simply wants to enhance the quality of our lives and create a better world for our youth, it is a voice we need to hear. I extend a hugely warm welcome to you, Aiko Bethia. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me here. It's such a delight and such an honor for me to have you here. I can't tell you how exciting this is for us. Thank you. So welcome. I'm honored that you've provided me with the time to speak about your work and your drive to our listeners. I'm excited to share how you do what you do, but I wonder if we should start learning a little bit about you as a young girl and what your childhood was like. You can give me a summary, a short summary, if you like. (laughs) Oh, sure. Um, Well, certainly I was raised in the U.S., but I was raised in the South, which is a very unique part of the United States compared to others, uh, specifically South Carolina. And I was raised in a Japanese speaking household. We were extremely poor. And uh, my mother, she moved here, I suppose when she was in her late twenties. So it was an immigrant household and we were in an all black community. And I often say that it was somewhat of a gift to be so poor because often when your parents, when you have two different races in your household, if you're black and the parent who is black is not in the household, and if you're wealthy, you're usually raised, um, you're not, more than likely, you're not going to be raised in an all black community. So I had, I think the best of both worlds in terms of being in a household that was um, Japanese speaking and uh, culturally so, but being in a community that was all black as well as my school, what have you. So I was very entrenched with communities that shared my identity. Did you learn both cultures equally, did you feel, or was some of that lost because you were obviously living in America? Yeah, I I wouldn't necessarily say it was equally because of course, uh, being completely immersed in American culture versus Japanese in terms of in societies. But I did have the a privilege of having my grandmother come here. She moved here and helped to raise us. So, um, and of course she, she had not lived in the U.S. for any amount of time. So culturally in the house very much. So I think that it was as good as it could get, especially considering financial constraints. Tell me, did you learn to speak Japanese? I did. And I will tell you that learning to speak Japanese in a household, uh, especially when you have relatives who are most southern part of Japan is a little bit of a different dialect. But I would say I did not learn to read or write it until I went to college. So uh, it's kind of fun. I think a lot of people in the U.S. will relate to um, this talk show <laughs> called Family Feud and Will of Fortune. And that's what my grandmother would watch a lot of. So we would actually, um, that's how she learned English. And that's how we, you know, were would, um, kind of immerse in one another's culture, but I was very young then, so I couldn't tell as much of a um, indifference in that way. And of course she loved sports and whatnot. So she has always been a big influencer in my life and one of the, my favorite people. She's not with us any longer, but certainly a big influence on me. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. She sounds like a remarkable woman. And actually you've already answered one of my questions, which is role modeling, but uh, we, we can go maybe go back to your grandma at that point when I ask you again. So you grew up in the South and then you chose law as a profession. And there's a lot of reasons why. I think um, one is that when you are 
raised without a lot of means. You think about careers where you're going, going to have financial security, where you're going to have more access. So I think that most people think about law, uh, being a lawyer or a doctor, right? Uh, but also for me, I think the idea of inequity was always very present since I was quite small. I think part of it is being part of an out group are being, whether that's racially, gender, or economically. And you think about what make what would make it different. And oftentimes finances makes a difference. Oftentimes uh, when you think about status and status goes so much with job. So that's how law came in, but also it's a way that you always think about the person fighting for justice for all. So I think that they went hand in hand, but there's certainly a, a huge financial component um, about choosing law and also access. But it was the one career where I felt like I could also be very much a defender and protector of others, right, in terms of access. Yeah. And then for how long did you stay in law and what led you from law into coaching, is what, which is what you do now? Oh, so it's such a roundabout way. So um, in law, it wasn't, let's see, probably about seven years, I would say. And I often tell people that a lot of the decisions I made were financially driven because uh, when you don't have means, you end up making a lot of decisions around that. So even the school I chose to go to, Smith, it was one of the schools that gave me the most money. Um, going into law, uh, this idea of justice for all completely, you know, deteriorated really quickly when you realize that you're not going to make too much being a legal aid attorney. And so I was at a large firm as a litigation attorney. Um, I think one of the first decisions that I made that was not financial dri financially driven was leaving a large firm practice and working for the city of Atlanta and deciding I wanted to be more in a community and also doing work with people who um, shared values when you think about being a public servant as well. And then from there, I ended up going into philanthropy because I wanted to go into nonprofit world and I worked at the Gates Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for some time, but always throughout and every one of these um, these junctures, you find that often you can be one of the only ones, be it the only female, the only person who uh, is first generation and recognizing that there often aren't a lot of mentors who are accessible for us, right? So, you know, of course, in books and movies and things, you can be very inspired. But at Gates, I had the gift of having my first executive coach. I didn't even know that they existed. I didn't know what they did. And it made a phenomenal difference for me. And I, the one thing that I realized was that there were not many executive coaches who were Black or people of color. And that is something that I felt was such a gift and I wanted to provide it to others. And in coaching, there's this uh, concept we call the coaching alliance. And that's how you connect with your client and build a level of trust. And I think that when you are often in an out group or you're sharing experiences, there is a level of closeness and connection you can get when you share identities often, not always, but often. And I wanted to be able to offer that uh, because otherwise, I think many women, women will be able to relate to this, is if you're sharing an experience that you've had at work in terms of it can be anything from I'm not being heard, something that could feel like sexual harassment. If you're speaking with a coach who might be male, you may not have that same feeling of safety. And also, you might find yourself in a situation where the coach is saying, 
are you sure that's what happened? Are you sure that, that was racist? So I wanted to be able to provide uh, executive coaching for people who might find themselves as one of the onlys. So there's not only a point of validation, but also a point of empowerment versus assimilation. And that's why executive coaching resonated with me is to have that type of connection and to support people. Um, and what I found now is that uh, many of my clients now also are those who want to create that environment for others. So they might be a white male CEO and they want to understand equity. They want to understand how to create psychological safety and they want to get that perspective. So my, um, the people who I support has expa expanded quite a bit, but the overall goal is being able to support leaders in um, increasing their emotional intelligence and also creating spaces where there are not barriers to inclusion and people can thrive. Love it. Love it. It speaks to every bone in my body. And I love hearing everything you're doing. Your rich and varied background clearly gives you such a wonderful, empathetic way of being able to speak to the people you work with too, I'm sure. But you have rare coaching. And tell me how that work there mirrors with the work that you do at the Daring Way and the Dare to Lead communities of Brené Brown Education and Research Group. Are they similar or different? So I would say there's a lot of overlap uh, when you think about leadership and supporting leaders to show up in a way where they can do their best work, where they're validated and empowered, um, where they're able to cross and have connections with others who may not have the same lived experience. That aligns so well with uh, the teachings of Brene Brown in terms of what's a courageous leader and being able to consider your own vulnerability, create spaces where others can come and show up and be vulnerable uh, and being in spaces where you can take risks and be emotionally exposed. And there's not punishment for that, right? So I think it aligns, but more so this idea of also being empathetic towards others and in, in being immersed in her work, I realized, gosh, we assume that everybody knows how to be empathetic. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> if only. I'm Hello. That's one of my superpowers. You spoke to two of them, emotional intelligence and empathy. We're already at two out of the five. So there you go. <laughs> You're going to hit on a few of your others too, but it's incredible to have a framework of how to teach that and how to connect it directly to courageous leadership. Amazing. Incredible. It must be such a wonderfully rewarding place to be part of as well, given all the passion that you've just shared in your reasons of why you joined the, the whole coaching area. I think we let's start then really by going through the basic definitions in your words of what the following letters DEI stand for, diversity, equity and inclusion. Would you explain them in your own words? So this is very much ICA-centric. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to find these words differently. But when I'm talking about this sphere, I am very grounded in the idea that diversity is about differences and differences that matter. And uh, the, uh, the first time I heard that thought validated was um, from Beth Zem Zemsky. And it's this idea that... Um, there's all types of diversity, right? You can say, uh, I'm an introvert, I'm an extrovert, and right now we have the slippery slope um, across society where we feel like, ah, oh, you're a Republican, you're a Democrat, you're 
tall, I'm short. But the idea when, especially when I pair it with equity, is diversity that matters. And not to say that other diversity does not matter, but when I am talking about equity and inclusion, I am talking about who has traditionally not mattered, not been seen, not been heard. And oftentimes I always start with protected classes because when we mention protected classes, um, this is where societies had a handshake of recognizing there have been historic and systemic barriers that have not allowed some people to fully participate in society in an equitable way. So talking about diversity in all of these other ways, but you're not talking about it in the sense of where there have been intentional barriers, that you, it's really hard to pair it with saying also equity and inclusion. When I'm talking about equity, I'm talking about power dynamics. And so again, it comes into play that you can't just look at power dynamics between two people. You have to also look at the system they're in and history and systems that have already um, baked in inequities. So I often state this as power with or power over dynamics. And then lastly, inclusion, which is when there's psychological safety and someone feels like they can actually express a sentiment of dissent. And um, oftentimes when I'm surveying or having a climate survey in an organization, some of the questions that I'll ask include, um, do you feel that you're able to safely express an opinion of dissent? Do you believe that your leader welcomes opinions that are counter to their own? Um, so this is, and I, and I always try to share with people that you can have diversity and absolutely not have equity or inclusion. Just have diversity and collect a lot of different people, right? Doesn't mean they stay, doesn't mean you're going to hear their voice and their rich ideas, doesn't mean you're going to get the benefit of their experiences if they're not in a space where they can share that. And also, you may not fully be able to see the impact of a space if you're not thinking about something that's very unseen sometimes, which is power dynamics. And it's not just about CEO and the assistant, but it's also about when people walk into spaces already at a deficit because of societal structures, right? So that female scientist who's coming into a STEM lab, it's not just that she's the only one, but what has her opportunity been? What is the statement that's unspoken about her abilities, right? And that's for a lot of out groups. If you have different abilities, if you're out LGBT+, if you're a Black person, if you're somebody with an accent, what does that mean? So it's so important that when you come into a room and you're talking about DEI, that everyone is talking about it in the same way or else you're kind of like ships passing in the night. Yeah, I think that's an important point that you've made, that if we don't all start from the same foundational understanding of the three words, then really you're not achieving anything, despite the fact that you might be a big advocate of diversity and equity and inclusion. If you're not gathering the team around you to speak from your same hymn sheet, then what's the point? For those of us that may not be 100% clear, would you then kindly explain the difference between equity and equality? Yeah, um, equality is um, more so sameness. I think about equity in terms of fairness. When you're talking about fairness, you have to bring in the concept of history and systems. If you're talking about equality, it's a starting point of everybody gets the same thing. So you could say everyone's getting a pair of shoes, but they're all a size seven, right? <laughs> you're not going to fit everyone the same because you're not looking at the context of the size, the experience, the terrain. 
So I think that image helps me to sometimes understand it better. Mm. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think, especially if there are any young folks listening to this with their parents, that will be a nice visualization for them, actually. I know so much of the work that you do is within organizations for adults. And the work that I'm doing with Elevate is for our youth. But I'm so intrigued and I'm so interested in hearing your thoughts because I believe that it with these young folks that will one day be filling in the organizations that we all look to. And I believe that there's a change and a shift in mindset that needs to begin with the children while they're in their most pivotal educational years of schooling. Of course, I'm not suggesting by any means that we should ever stop educating ourselves, even as adults. But I think some of our intrinsic belief systems and our ability to reflect and build our values begins at our younger, impressionable ages. So that being said, I wonder what you think we can do to make the correct impressions and provide our youth with the messages that are so important around DEI. Yeah, I think that there's so much that we can deal with messaging, but I think the learning is so much about modeling and exper experiential learning and modeling being, what do they see? How do they see adults speaking with one another, connecting, weighing the judgment that happens? Um, also being able to give youth permission to disagree and able to unpack things because I think in the disagreement that's when you really understand the dynamics that youth are grappling with um, not just talking at them and saying this is the way or this is what you should learn it's when they disagree that you can find the inertia and for me uh, you and I were talking earlier we're both parents um, teens and preteens and I think that that's when I actually start learning also is when they disagree with me and I think oh man you know what that's right so the modeling as adults that we don't know everything. It also puts the youth in the position of being the teacher. And that I think is the empowering of itself, which is saying what you have to say in your perspective is worthy and worthwhile. And there's nothing more than that type of empowerment, I think. And it's not just learning lessons, it's about enabling them to, or inviting them to question. It's the critical thinking that's so important because there's no way we can teach um, youth or anyone about every situation they're going to encounter, but we can support them in thinking critically. And coming back to this question that I use with adults and it's empowering for youth too, which is who do you want to be in this moment? Because each question or situation is gonna present a different scenario. But if you're true north about who you want to be, it's always there, you can understand how, what tone do I want to, want to have? How do I want this person to feel at the end of this conversation? What's really important for me in terms of boundaries and what I want to happen after this? So I think that it's not so rigid as in the 10 things you must learn before, <laughs> but it's about who do you want to be and how do you use your voice in a way that's strong and not only centered in the I about impact and impact on others beyond yourself. I think you're absolutely right. I think it ignites exactly what I would love for our youth to have, which is curiosity, questioning, don't accept things, you know, question the status quo and ask why. If, you, if we don't ask why, then we're never going to break these barriers, are we? We're never going to teach. Yes, absolutely. That learner mindset. Um, yes, I love what you just said and how you said it. Um, because if you just take things as they are and we're teaching kids a status quo, the very status quo of systems that are perpetuating inequities, 
Yes, I appreciate your reframing of that. No, no, thank you for shedding so much light on everything that you're you're doing is is absolutely interesting for me to learn from your perspective as well. I really, you know, enjoy listening to all the uh, incredible insights you've offered. One of the things that I'm going to then ask you, and I'm going to recount a quote of one of your reflections on a particular experience, which not, was not a very pleasant one. So forgive me for bringing up something that wasn't great, but I think it's important. And I would love to you to share some thoughts on it, if you wouldn't mind. This is something you've written. I will never forget being searched at an organization where I served as part of the leadership team. As all of my white colleagues walked past me wondering what I did wrong. The security team learned that a bag was taken. My bag looked nothing like the one that was reported missing, but I was the first black person seen coming from the direction where the bag was reported missing. After this, I never brought my sons to that campus again, and I increased my efforts to transition out of that organization. This account left me with terrible chills, really. The account is alarming and demoralizing, but in many ways, I feel it was important to highlight it because it brings home the reality of so much unconscious bias. And we were just speaking about what we said, what we say to our youth, and what we model to our youth. And what you said there about your son's witnessing or not being able to ever witness something like that again was really important to me. And I think it does shape other people's lives. So I would just love to hear your thoughts on some of the ways that you think we might be able to change this narrative. So the question about what can we do to change the narrative, I think that there's uh, probably three dynamics in that example, probably more, but the three that I think of immediately that come to bear is the dynamic for me. So I, there was a lot of privilege in the situation of being like, I'm going to search for another job, uh, but having the understanding of I didn't deserve this. So one is my not going into this idea of shame of I'm a terrible person. I don't belong here. This is terrible. But instead thinking I didn't deserve this and this place is wrong. And that starts with a lot of us who are outliers for us not to um, for us not to validate some of the things that society tells us models for us and says about us. And a lot of the work that I do with people who are not in you know, dominant culture or what have you is the self-validation aspect. Um, so there's that part. The other part is, gosh, the space itself in the organization enabling this to happen and how is it holding itself accountable? That has everything to do with how you hire, how that uh, type of behavior would have been, there would have been consequences on it as well, about it as well. And of course, there's a person who is uh, in that role of security and how they, uh, show up as an individual, but what was allowed? There was something in that space that allowed and said this was okay, that they didn't think that, wow, I shouldn't do that or what have you. There were no consequences in their mind at all, were there? That's mm -hmm. right. That's right. Mm -hmm. And then there's a third party in this, which is which are the observers. When I talk about all the white colleagues going past and not saying anything, um, and perhaps there's some degree of belief of she must have done something wrong. And no one's stopping and saying, wait a minute, what's going on here? She has a bad time know her. What, what's happening? So there's also that choice if we go back to the beginning of who do you want to be in different search situations? So there's the idea of, you know, are you going to be a bystander or are you going to be an upstander? What do you want the space that you navigate to be like? So I think there's, you know, and particularly in that one, there's three to four players 
who all have a role to play in upping the ante of what the what the respect level, what the welcome level, what the psychological safety level is in these spaces. And I say that because there's space for everyone, right? It, just in that one dynamic, when you think about that, um, the role of media. I mean, right now, uh, I just think our youth have so many more options than we had, right? I mean, well, in the U.S., there was like, leave it the beaver. There was, you know, really, uh, you know families in situations where we could watch uh, television or shows all day and never see anybody who looks like us. A lot of assumptions in there, everything from sexual orientation, you know, thinking that everyone's heterosexual to everyone has their means met. Uh, and of course, there's the advent of Cosby Show and all these other shows where you start seeing yourself. So I think today youth has so many more options, but there's a degree of intentionality of what messages you're going to connect with or not, because just like there's more options about positive uh, images and diversity. There's also a lot of stuff out there that's really scary. Um, there's, again, going back to the idea that we cannot monitor everything, but if we teach our kids to question what they're seeing and to understand what kind of society do I want to live in, who do I want to be, really infused with the idea of empathy, connection, um, care for one another, compassion and self-compassion, then the choices will be different. I don't want to necessarily um, edit what's out there. I want people to see and to reject what they don't want and to do it online along the lines of being compassionate and thinking about empathy and being courageous and what type of space do we want for everyone and not just ourselves. Yeah, I have to agree with you, except I have one question to ask you. What, what about those kids whose homes or parents or the people that surround them, their carers, hold some of these values that perhaps aren't what we would love our youth to have. Maybe they embrace uh, notions and preconceived stereotypes that enhance behaviors of unfairness, of racism, of things like this. I mean, how do, what do you say to those types of families and kids that want to question the status quo, but are deeply ingrained in a belief system or a society or a family system that doesn't agree with what they're, what they're seeing? Yeah. So I would say one, it's hard. It's difficult. Uh, that is one great thing about internet and other things that we have to see other things, but I will say that it's not even just youth. Um, when I'm the work around diversity, equity, inclusion, and again, a connection with Renee's work, um, this idea of that I talk to people a lot about the two barriers that I see the most in having long-term sustainable transformational change. And it is about shame. It is about fear. We, we hear people often saying, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And it's actually so much more entrenched than that. Before you even get to the point of being able to question and think about, wow, my, my grandmother is a racist. Wow, the church that I go to doing things that I don't know if I believe in. To walk that walk, there's a degree of being prepared to also take on grieving. And I think about grieving as loss. So you might have, you might actually lose a community and a connection that has been invaluable to you. It's really hard to look at a parent and think that, I mean, when's the first time you realize that your parents were really human and flawed? It's difficult. And think that they're not who you thought they were. Um, 
is hard and there's a degree of shame that comes with that and grieving. So I do think there's something about our societies being able to hold space for more of that and to invite naming when shame is happening, naming and being able to connect with others when you're grieving because now you are more equipped to be able to walk away from some things that are not what you would have chosen, right? But it takes a lot to see that. Yeah. And then to break it in your in yourself. Because I think through osmosis and social conditioning and everything else, it becomes ingrained in, in many of us. And it's really difficult to then break it as well from you. Don't even if you want to. There's a lot of kids that don't want to have the same anger issues that maybe their parents might have, but they can't help themselves in school playgrounds. They 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 model what they've seen at home, you know, when something goes wrong, they lash out. I'm going to sort of move on again a little bit about your work around leadership and training others. We talk about leadership training and we talk about development and then we talk about DEI matters and we say they're important, but you highlight in your writing a lot about the fact that there shouldn't be a distinction between the two. I would love for you to tell me a little bit more about how we can understand that the two are intertwined and not something that should be looked at separately. Right. Um, I would say, first of all, when oftentimes when people hear the hear about diversity or you hear diversity and inclusion or what have you, those uh, terms have become somewhat stigmatized. Like, oh, no, <laughs> here we go. Gosh, I, something I have to do now on top of my day job is now this. So it's been stigmatized and also segregated as this different body of work. Whereas I think that no matter what you read, if you look at you know, HBR or Stanford Social Innovation Review or Fast Company, Forbes, whatever, MIT Sloan Review, you find that um, amongst the top skills of successful or impactful leaders, they come down to the very same skills that it takes to be, and I have these air quotes going on here, good at DEI, right? And part of that is, you know, you hear about one thing is inability to foster innovation and creativity. We know that diversity and inclusion actually leads to greater innovation and um, creativity. We know that also another aspect is emotional intelligence, which is overlaid with effective communication. Well, be an effective communicator, if you don't know your audience, who are you communicating? How do they see their world? What's the perspective taking in that? So the idea of empathy. If you're not self-aware in terms of what perspective people have of you and how you're showing up and how they're responding to you, well, guess what? You're not going to be the best um, communicator. The idea of being able to influence others, especially without, if you don't have authority over, you don't want to have a command and control style, well, you have to be able to garner their credibility and trust. And that you have to be able to build relationships. These are all components of a strong and sound leadership, especially if we think about 21st century and you know, likely 22nd century leaders and what the workforce will look like. You've got to be able to look beyond what your narrow community could be or how you usually would have impact. These are the exact same skills of being able to see difference and appreciate it, be able to understand how power shows up in a room, whether it's spoken or not, and also understand what makes someone feel psychologically safe. And if we go back to those definitions of diversity, equity, inclusion that I shared, that's pretty much all those components rolled up in one. Yeah. So empowering children and people of all backgrounds really does keep 
you know, I keep honing in on that, that your difference is actually what's going to make the best changes in the world. You're, you are going to bring us forward because you bring in ideas that are unique. Um, it's interesting, though, because I think when children get diagnosed with any kind of learning difficulty or any kind of difference, whatever that may be, they suddenly feel they're inferior. And it's so important. I hope they understand what you've just said, which is actually every bit of that difference makes them more unique and more special and, and brings in greater innovation and new ideas all the time. True. And I will just say one thing, which is that usually the youth themselves aren't necessarily feeling inferior because they learn they have a difference. They feel inferior because the system tells them they're different and less than. It's a spin on that that I think is very important because we aren't inherently just thinking, oh, I'm less than. It is a system that's reinforcing the idea that your difference leaves you being left less than. Yeah, no, you're, that's a really important point. It's absolutely right. And I think the, you, what you've just said is, is important for all of us to hear. Again, actually, it's down to us to change that way of thinking around differences from right from the start. Right. I'm going to say two words to you, accountability and action. You've spoken a little bit about it already. I would love to know what you would say to our youth who feel the injustice so deeply and do not believe that those who need to be held accountable are actually being held accountable, particularly in the wake of this last year? What would I say to them? I think that, um, gosh, there's so many things. I think a lot of people use MLK's quote about, you know, the arc, <laughs> but it's so long term. I, I, I do think the satisfaction also is about, gosh, I just keep going back to this, but the idea of who do you want to be and what do you want the world to be like? Because see now isn't the end of the story. It's never the end of the story, but you are equipped to be able to help shape the end of the story, right? So because you're seeing something, I think that we learned so much in society. I think about in U.S. even, you know, our past president, we learned so much about ourselves and it has empowered a movement of people being more vocal, wanting to learn, taking a stand, um, being more engaged in our body politics. So I don't think, I, I think the the win is understanding that what you see now is not the end of the story, but the empowering part is that you get to shape that story and be, be motivated and empowered to be a part of that. Do you feel though that there is a sense of loss in hope or the children or youth feeling less optimistic in the systems that they see around them as failing them. I just fear personally that there might be greater and greater resentment and lack of faith building up in the minds of their, of our youth, uh, particularly with the establishment and probably with those in, in positions of power and maybe without, not without justified reasons. I wonder how, what we can do to rebuild that faith in, in the establishment, in people, but in just in humanity, I just feel that there's basic human connection and understanding that seems to have been a little bit lost and divided so many of us. Yeah, I, I would agree that we saw some, we've, we're seeing a lot of the ugliness in polarization. Um, but I would also say that um, I will say that through a lot of what's happened in the last you know, several years, what I have also seen is um, I think about the youth when they had the march on Washington about gun control. Um, I 
think about, oh my gosh, a nine-year-old girl talking to thousands of people. (laughs) I even think about what youth are doing on social media and what they're doing on TikTok and how they're talking, you know, speaking truth to power and um, being resistant. So I, I reject the idea that, you know, there's hopelessness, um, I do think that there are feelings and moments where we have, where we feel disempowered, but think about it as a continuum. And we all have moments where you're up, where you're down. And the idea is that engagement can't stop. The idea of um, being empowered and making impact, seeing a possibility of what you want the world to be and being a part of it. Cause I think, you know, we can find any moment in time where there have been communities, not just individuals, where you think, how could they have possibly imagined a time when they would be able to have the right to vote? So the women's suffrage movement, which was largely very much white women, or if you think about the civil rights um, uh, movement as well, to think that Black people would also be able to have access, that there would be integration. So I think there's, a, there's this power of imagination of knowing there's something beyond what's now. When I write about this a lot, I talk about why the creatives are so important. Being able to imagine and see what you haven't seen now. And so the hopelessness that we see now is not about anything that has not always existed. We see it more, George Floyd's murder wasn't the first time a black male was killed. Um, When we think about Breonna Taylor, that wasn't the first time. So hopelessness, I just think we're seeing it and it's visible. But look, there's this conversation happening. There's empowerment happening. There's accountability of what what does the system owe us? And there's also this idea of deserving and not deserving. So when we're resistant, we're saying we don't deserve this and we're more than this. And so I think that is powerful. And I don't think there's anything happening in society today in a harmful way that has not always existed. Right. Thank you for clarifying that, too. I think that's nice. And I think that will be really hopeful for for all of us who are feeling a little bit doomy and gloomy about this current set of affairs. I know you spoke at length about this in your previous interviews, but I would love to unpack some of your explanations for our listeners here, too, on the fundamental and important differentiation between transactional and transformational ways to approach diversity. I think it will hit home to many. And I also think it is crucial for us to take some responsibility in our day-to-day lives to ensure that we are working from a transformational place. I know you can do this beautifully because I've heard you talk about it in the past, but it would be great for us to take some time here to explain it because I think there's one way of looking at this that will have the effects that we want and one that won't. When I do think about transactional, I am thinking very much about check the box and when we're talking about this in the sense of organizational work, uh, oftentimes you'll see that the first thing people gravitate towards, towards is uh, talent acquisition and hiring. Oh man, we don't have enough of women. We're going to hire a lot of women. Let's count how many, what the numbers are that's different. Hey, we need more black people. We're going to hire more black people. So it's almost like collecting people and you're checking the box and looking at the numbers and the data, but you haven't exactly changed anything in your culture or impacted it. Um, it is compliance driven where you might say, hey, we're going to have that sexual harassment training and everyone has to have it, but it's not impacting necessarily the culture. Uh, when I think about transformational, to have transformational change, you necessarily have to be introspective. 
So that is, again, asking who do I want to be and what's the impact of what I'm doing or thinking on others. Transactional is very much, what's our intention? Are we following the rules? Are we doing this? Are we checking that? You can do transactional all day and never think about your own, your own role in this or who you are or other people. Whereas transformational is very people-centered. It's relational. There's longevity in terms of uh, the impact and that that's how culture changes in a way that becomes more inclusive. So and it is not, I wanna be really clear that transformational does not, does not exclude data, but it is very intentional understanding what's the story that data is telling us. It is quantitative and qualitative, hearing the stories and the experiences. I find a lot in organizations that data becomes a method of gatekeeping well, what are the numbers telling us? What are the numbers? And not listening to the stories at all. People want the numbers to be able to validate. Is there a change we need to make? Well, the numbers don't tell us we're not inclusive. Well, the numbers don't tell us we're not being equitable. And they go to that for this degree of confirmation bias of quantitative gatekeeping versus saying, man, we have all these people who are actually saying they've had this experience and validating it so that when people are telling you what their experience is, you're believing them and you're unpacking what's happening. And would you say that one of the reasons people might shy away from doing the transformational change, A, it requires more work. Is it to do with efficiency, efficacy? Why are people so scared to get into transformational change? So I think transformational makes you think about yourself. It makes you be introspective. A lot of times we're not coming to work to think about our family of origin issues or how we're showing up. Um, and we have, there's definitely this idea of, I think it comes up a lot when you think about soft skills versus hard skills. The hard skills are really important and they're data-driven and, and the soft skills about, oh, we don't, you know, how you feel and what's happening. <laughs> and it becomes very minimalized. But this efficiency um, part is, this idea of saying that transactional is about efficiency is misleading because there's a quote that Brene has, and I don't, I can't remember what it is, but the idea of leaders, if you're not tending to the fears and feelings of your workforce, you're going to end up paying a different price. That's not the exact quote that she has, but if you are not creating a space of psychological safety, if you aren't thinking about what is um, allowing people to feel included and like they can bring their voice to the table, yes, you're going to be doing a lot of rework you're going to lose people and have a churn of a hiring um, hamster wheel. When we think about what happens in these um, companies, uh, that especially industrial companies or hospitals, if people don't feel safe enough, like they can speak up and say something, guess what? It's life or death, right? And also there's another cost about having to re-engineer things because the person who could have spoken to it didn't feel safe, didn't want to be punished for it or what have you. So the idea, of efficiency is, I think, uh, it's kind of an urban legend. It's a way for us to think fast, but it's not a way for us to think about impact and success. And lasting change. And also, I think that what you just said about soft skills and hard skills, I I, I would like to say that actually they're all human skills, really. I, I find that di- the idea that we try and make them soft versus hard, I, I think is interesting. Um, in itself, even the terminology around it, I find interesting. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The whole gender story. Yeah, in the back, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I so want to go back to those people. But yeah, I think maybe we can save that for a whole other podcast um, interview. <laughs> so what messages would you want to give young girls of today from everything you've learned and from the experiences you've had? 
there's there's so much and I will go back to keep it simple. There's probably two messages. One is that understanding that your differences aren't flaws, but sometimes it's just you're seeing the toxicity in the water, right? So the idea of a fish doesn't know what's in water. Oftentimes we as women, people of color, what have you, we're swimming in it all day. Don't let that toxicity in the water become your voice, your own inner critic. I'm not good enough. I'm not, you know, the way that I look actually informs how smart I am or how capable I am. I can reject that. Um, and that idea of going back and just thinking all the time about who do I want to be and feel empowered to do that. Uh, so that it's all coming back from your inner idea of what's possible and hopefulness and optimism and being empowered. But a key part is feeling free to critique the systems that we're in versus accepting them as law. Mm, yeah, hugely empowering. And I love to take that question of who do I want to be in? Perhaps that's more situational based, but I like to ask them, what is what problem do you want to fix? Even if you don't know what you want to be, what problem do you want to fix? Think about it from that point and see if that offers you any ways of looking at each situation for what it is. Well, Aiko, you are a shining example of someone who has dared to lead and you lead with extraordinary empathy and honesty. In your view, what does make a good leader? So if I had to say two things, somebody has a learner mindset, which means you're a learner. You expect to not get it right all the time. You expect to be learning from different sources, different people, what have you, different situations. Um, and so there's ideas of a degree of humility that goes with being a learner, right? Yes, yes. I love that. I just listened to Adam Grant talk about confident humility and being okay with not always trying to be right, but trying to get it right. It's just so wonderfully empowering. And I think that there is so freeing to not have to be the knower. It's so freeing to say, actually, I don't know. I and know. I'm going to you all too. Like who wants to be a learner? I just think, oh, that's so stressful. Uh, and learning it to me, at least it's fun. It's fun. Um, and then the idea of that goes with that. So I think having a learner mindset and also being empathetic towards others. Beautiful, beautiful. So I started off by talk, uh, telling you right at the start of the interview that I do love to end my interviews by asking you who your role models are. You mentioned your grandmother, anyone else, and maybe who your role models. So that was when you were growing up. Maybe she's still your role model today, but do you have different role models as well? Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> or others. I'm dealing with, right? But I would definitely, I, I always, the reason why I always say my grandmother and people always say, oh, you're going to say a family member is because she came to this country, not speaking English when she was in her fifties, um, as a Japanese woman who was in an all black community in the South with her black grandchildren, <laughs> you know, she was so fun and amazing. And, um, I think she had such a joy of life and she was amazing at like everything, everything from Ikebana to sh making shadow boxes to sewing, building, planning. I mean, she, I feel like there's nothing she couldn't do. She never went anywhere that she didn't have friends and community. And this is a woman who spent most of her life in one, you know, country. So there's so much underneath it in the way that she showed up in the world that I just, I aspire to. I mean, she wasn't an academic and all these other things, but gosh, I, that type of learner mindset and embracing people and having grace towards others, I, you know, I just think it was unparalleled. And I'm so grateful that I had, you know, um, I had, I had the ability to see that modeled in 
the, the so many attributes modeled um, by her. Oh, I'm so tickled by that image and I'm enamored by everything you've just said about her. I, I love her already too. I think she sounds like an incredible and remarkable person to have had in your life. And I think what you just said about all the qualities that you, you aspire to have within you is something all of us and all young girls probably should try and work towards because it sounds like she was um, truly inspirational. Absolutely. Thank you for asking. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I don't to talk about her. So. <laughs> Oh, Aiko, I've really enjoyed our time. I know you've been busy. I know you've been up since the crack of dawn teaching already. I think you, I, I don't know many people that wake up at 4am to, to teach classes, but you've been doing that and you've so kindly given me some time today. So really, I'm grateful for everything you've said. I think you're going to inspire and empower so many, so many young minds. Thank you for inviting me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm so grateful. If anyone's looking for more of the work that Icopathia is doing with all her incredible initiatives, I've got everything linked in my show notes. Please take the time to have a look and read more, educate ourselves more, and let's think about what it is that we want to be. I think that's a wonderful thought to end our interview on. Absolutely wonderful to have you. Thank you, Ike. Thank you for having me. What a marvel she is. That was the brilliant Aiko Bethia. I hope all of you listening will have been as encouraged, uplifted and moved by her teachings on the important topics of diversity, equity and inclusion. I do hope you'll share so we can continue doing the good work that she is inspiring all of us to take action on and to make the difference that is so needed. Until next time, speak to you soon. Bye for now. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from The Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.